1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Tuesday marked two years since COVID-19 was first reported in Canada. It was only known then as the novel coronavirus. It was discovered in a 56-year-old man who had just returned from Wuhan, China, and was admitted to Sunnybrook, where he became patient zero, the first known COVID case in this country. Since then, Canada has logged nearly 3 million infections. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to reflect on the two-year anniversary of COVID in Canada. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health. Dr. Alan Vaisman is an infectious diseases and infection control physician at University Health Network. And Dr. Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information.
2: Imagination extended as far as Delta, imagining things could get a little bit worse. And I did not have the the foresight to see such a gigantic jump in the evolution. And it's 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 not that Omicron was descended from Delta. It's not. But an evolution in coronavirus overall to be as contagious as measles, which is really what we've got right now. I did not see that coming. So no, I have to say I I have felt humbled uh, over the past two two months or so that um, that this is this is a level of challenge for us that I think we can still win and will still win, but I did not see it coming. Uh, Alon, Dr. Vaisman, what about you?
3: Yeah, I think it's very important. I think that's the most important lesson of the pandemic is time and time again, we're all humbled and any kind of plans or predictions we make are constantly being revised and revisited. I think for me, one of the biggest changes in my mind was the change from the vaccine efficacy in terms of preventing transmission for milder, milder asymptomatic disease. You know, initially we were thinking it's quite good, but with Omicron, that calculation has changed. It's not nearly as good. And despite it being very good against protection against death and hospitalization, the fact that it's not as good as preventing transmission has unfortunately resulted in many cases still.
4: Dr. Jha, what about you? Uh,
3: well, I'm sur- I'm not surprised that uh, we, uh, well, l-
5: let me caution that, it is surprising how infectious Omicron was. I think that cost that caught us all. But it's not surprising to me that we would expect variants that could threaten us simply because what was needed from the outset was a strategy to vaccinate the whole world and to decrease places where variants could grow. But we've very much failed on that. So Delta came from uh, basically uncontrolled transmission and, and think of it as a a nice variant uh, a factory um, in India, and Omicron came from South Africa from a combination of of um, lots of people with infected with HIV plus this new variant that was circulated and low levels of vaccination. So we, it doesn't surprise me that uh, the the nature of the virus and its changes is always surprising, uh, and that's you know you're competing against billions of years of evolution on how the virus behaves, but our political inability to vaccinate the world, to me, isn't surprising.
4: Dr. Furness, are you brave enough to make a prediction or a thought about where we are at? I know after, uh, in the fall, you know, when Delta was winding down, we thought we were close to the end, and then there was this.
2: Sure. I'll, I'll be brave, but it'll be a pretty qualified prediction. Um, you know, there's a thing called Farr's Law that says that um, um, an outbreak is going to be symmetrical. The steeper the curve up, the steeper the curve down, and that would suggest that we should be getting out of this actually quite quickly because it hit us like a ton of bricks very, very quickly. But, we, but we're messing with that. We're messing with it by well, except in British Columbia, um, we're, we're instituting things to try and slow that curve a little bit. We're wearing masks and, and we're, we're vaccinating and we're doing these things. So I think we may end up with a longer peak and that may be longer than we wish it to be it could be a few weeks when it starts to come down more uh, it'll keep coming down i think we're going to be in for a summer of little covid and then the question is does something else does a new variant emerge and i think what's already been said about our failure dr jaw's point that our failure to vaccinate the world
4: okay dr vaseman we're almost out of time last 20 seconds to you
3: yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, of course, with the vaccination rates going high, vaccinations are remaining very effective against death and hospitalizations. But of course, as we discussed, there's still a lot of improvement in terms of preparing for the next pandemic, preparing for the next wave for our healthcare system to be protected.
1: Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at University Health Network. Dr. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. And Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, the governing Trudeau Liberals announced the latest round of aid to Ukraine. Canada will provide intelligence and cyber-defensive support, as well as a plan to continue our military training mission there for an additional three years. After considering Ukraine's request for weapons, the Prime Minister emphasized that what we are providing is non-lethal aid. Trudeau's news came hours after the U.S. rejected Moscow's demands that NATO bar Ukraine from future membership and reduce military presence in nearby countries. Canada has the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world. So Fight Back checked in with Dr. Maria Popova, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science at McGill University, and Peter Storin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto Branch.
6: We are uh, encouraged that uh, there still is ongoing support, but we are profoundly disappointed that uh, Canada has not uh, acted this in the same way as uh, other allies have, such as UK, US, Baltic states, Poland, that are actually providing defensive weapons to Ukraine uh, prior to any uh, further conflict. Moving forward, and Ukraine's been in that situation where where, you, where Russia has been waging war on the eastern front for the last eight years. Um, so um, uh, we're going to continue to, to request the government to do more, uh, such as uh, the other the other uh, allies have done.
4: Dr. Popova, why do you think that uh, our government made this decision? It might be because uh, Canada is sort of
7: trying to play a good cop to uh, the U.S.'s bad cop. I mean, the, the reality is we don't really know uh, what is going to deter Russia and de escalate this situation. Is it going to be more diplomacy or is it going to be uh, arming Ukraine? Uh, it is still possible that diplomacy would do the trick. And the reason for that is that in fact, Russia doesn't have a very good and clear winning strategy Uh, By invading. Uh, If they invade further, they will just have a very difficult task on their hands, a very bloody conflict, and they will have to militarily occupy uh, Ukraine, which will resist very, very strongly. The Russians know this, so there is a chance of uh, deterrence.
4: Peter Sturen, uh, I'm assuming that you and many people in your organization, your community, have family there, have friends there. You're in close touch. What are they telling you about what everyday life is like? Well,
6: normal everyday life is still ongoing. People still go about their business and everything. But there's obviously this this palpable sense of, uh, of what can actually happen next. I mean, eight years ago, no one would have predicted that Russia would come and take a large swath of land like Crimea and, and a good part of the eastern Ukraine through, uh, by, by sending in their military. Um, so uh, the, the reality is, is Russia is very unpredictable. And unfortunately, history shows us that uh, they are more than willing to, uh, to, to get involved physically and, and do great harm uh, to their neighbors.
4: Dr. Popova, what would you like to leave us with on this?
7: I'll just emphasize that for sure, uh, there was no separatist movement initially, and this was created uh, by Russia. Uh, But right now, Ukraine does not control these territories at all. So if we end up with uh, Ukraine losing these territories on paper as well, I think it's much preferable than a full-on invasion of the country, which will be very, very bloody.
4: Peter Stirn, what would you like to leave us with?
6: I, I think that uh, there's, the aggression will continue, unfortunately. Um, and I don't imagine anything other than full capitulation on the side of Ukraine would satisfy Mr. Putin. Um, so it's really uh, up to him to decide where, where all this ends, because Ukraine obviously is not doing anything whatsoever to create any issue. Uh, they want to move on like everyone else and just be part uh, and have their own liberal democracy like they have in the rest of Europe. So I hope the Canadians continue to stand with Ukraine, and uh, we will pray for the best.
1: Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto branch, and Dr. Maria Popova, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science at McGill University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. Coming up after the break, home care is facing the same Omicron-fueled labor shortages as long-term care.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: The same issues causing labor shortages in Ontario's hospitals and long-term care homes are hitting the home care sector. We've learned from Home Care Ontario that before the pandemic, they could fulfill 95% of requests for home visits. But as of December 31st of last year, the percentage of requests fulfilled had dropped to just 56%. And it is undoubtedly worse now because of Omicron-related absences. This scenario is on top of a shattering statistic that some 4,000 nurses have left the home care sector since the onset of the pandemic. And there is a ripple effect on already strained hospitals, as the latest numbers from the province show 582 patients would be eligible to leave hospital with publicly funded home care if it was available. It also puts added stress on family caregivers who have to pick up the slack. Libby was joined on Wednesday for this important discussion by Carrie Thompson, caregiver to her mother who has Alzheimer's disease, Jake Mitten, owner and managing director of Home Instead Markham, and Natalie Mayra, executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition.
8: Our experience was that the chief complaint we got from people who Are in home care or needing home care of their families is um, missed visits. So even though they might ostensibly be supposed to be receiving those visits, or they might have been, um, they weren't enough workers to show up for the visits. And that was incredibly common before the pandemic. So to hear that that number, you know, 96, which is kind of makes it look a little better than it really was prior to the pandemic, has dropped to 56. And that the rest 56 percent, so almost 50 percent, 44 percent can't even get onto home care, onto the list to supposedly get home visits, is extremely disturbing, very disturbing. And it probably, I mean, it's an illustration of how much worse things have gotten, but I don't think really totally captures, uh, you know, how little care at home there really is available to people now.
4: Let's ask Jade. Mitten, who uh, manages and owns Home Care Instead in Markham, have you felt this problem of your employees leaving because of the strain?
9: Yeah, I think uh, you know that we've all industries have, have felt the staffing shortage, but healthcare and home care specifically. And you know, for us, the the health and safety of not only our clients but also our employees. You know, it's really our top priority. And so I think the biggest issue these last few months have been, you know, making sure that they stay safe and healthy and following public health guidelines. That the, the rampant Omicron is going around. Once they, you know, inevitably it, it does get picked up by some of our staff and then following protocol, you know, they're, they need to be put in isolation and that does leave the potential for shifts to be unfilled. And I think with home care in general, you know, it it makes up such a substantial part of our healthcare system. And just the fact that it's being done in the, you know, the private dwellings of people's homes, you know, it's not something that's always uh, seen. And, you know, we play a big role in not only keeping people out of the hospital from preventative measures, but as you kind of mentioned afterwards, people who would be, or when they're leaving the hospital to go home, and aren't fully able to be independent, we play a huge part in keeping them safe in their home. Carrie Thompson, first of all, how are you doing?
10: I'm doing well, Libby. Wishing, like everybody, that there could be more balance in, in what is happening in all of our lives. And some are suffering more than me, I'm sure. But uh, taking care of a, a mother with Alzheimer's is a pretty precarious balancing act, trying to work and manage your family on the side. We we actually needed to move my mom from being at home to living in an independent retirement home. In an independent retirement home, just as if she was still in my home, we can get the services that Natalie and Jake are talking about. And then the other thing is the government has this lovely line that these services are not guaranteed, so what does that mean exactly? It means they'll do their best to get there, but maybe they won't. So it's a system that is freeing at the edges. It's a system of full of well-intentioned, big-hearted people. But I wish they'd spend a little bit more time with focus groups talking to the families, so they'd really understand.
4: So, Carrie, how often has it happened that these services, mm-hmm. they, they just haven't happened and you've had to rush in?
10: Great question. Um, In the last two weeks, because of the Omnicon and everybody being so sick, it has happened, I'm going to say, 50% of the time. Wow. It's crazy.
1: Caregiver Carrie Thompson, Jake Mitten, owner and managing director of Home Instead Markham, and Natalie Mayra, executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Zoomer community is abuzz over a real estate report that was released this past week. It's from Engel and Volkers Real Estate and says that one of the reasons for the big supply crunch is that baby boomers are not letting go of their family homes and downsizing or moving into retirement communities. They rightly point out that this started to be a factor before the pandemic, but it's been accelerated because of the devastation caused by COVID in long-term care and revelations about the poor state of long-term care in general. And while people have been talking about aging in place for a long time, they are now probably acting on it by doing renovations that will assist them as they become elderly. The issue is that it feeds a very negative intergenerational narrative that baby boomers are stopping millennials from owning homes, which couldn't be further from the truth since boomer parents are often assisting their adult millennial children with down payments for their homes. Libby was joined for a discussion on this hot topic by Steve Jelinek, sales representative with Chestnut Park Real Estate, Phil Soper, president and CEO of Royal LePage, and Anthony Hitt, CEO of Engel & Volker's Americas.
11: Baby booners movers own uh, you know, a, a large share of real estate in Canada, as they do in most parts of the world. And uh, they are staying, staying set. And uh, the, the fact of the reality is that they've got a lot of reasons for, for staying set. I mean, the fact is, historically, they would downsize or they would move into retirement homes. Uh, but uh, the baby boomers of today are not the baby boomers of yesterday. They're healthier, both physically and financially. So they don't necessarily need to make those changes. They've watched the results of what happened in uh, homes during, uh, the uh, uh, retirement homes during the uh, COVID crisis. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to go through that. So with that being said, they've got the financial capabilities because their homes have appreciated and they're staying, they're staying set. But I don't think it's fair to say that they're the problem, because I also think when it comes to the next generation, the boomers are also a big part of the solution. The, boom, the boomers are the people who have been uh, gifting those down payments to their to their children so they can buy in this market and who are doing very well. They are the, the people who are passing those condo properties down to the younger generation so they can start their their situation. So, um, you know, they may be part of the reason there's a housing shortage, but I don't know that I would call them the problem.
4: Phil Soper, I'm trying to remember when I first reported on this trend of boomers staying in place, and it was based on a report from your company. And I don't exactly remember, but I think it's got to be like 10 years, maybe. Am I close?
12: The two largest demographics in Canadian history, are number one, the millennials, and number two, the boomers. They're actually pretty close in size. There's just over 9 million boomers and just over 10 million millennials. They are the two big forces in Canadian real estate right now. Now, one thing, they don't tend to be looking for the same houses. So I think the subtle message here is not that they're just, you know, with their fingernails hanging on to their place. They're readjusting for this stage of life. We have to Remember that kids left home later, so millennials took around. And sometimes they're coming back. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and they keep coming back. And boomers are are working longer than their uh, parents or grandparents uh, did, and they have the money. They've worked their whole life. So if they're active and working or even just active, they obviously have the right to live in whatever kind of uh, property they wish to and can afford. So it's it's a bit of a um, a cheap shot that I don't think too many people will buy into the, the, blaming boomers for the shortage of housing in this country. Well, that lands uh, squarely on the shoulders of our um, policymakers, our politicians and such.
4: I'm going to bring in Steve Jelinek and do you find that people in that age bracket thinks all these I find it's more kind of a a resentment. It's like we had it so easy when we were buying our homes; they were so cheap, uh, and that kind of thing. Do you do you find that among your clients?
11: Well, I, I feel as though the difference in the demographic approach. I think it's a bit of a, a naive approach that my generation takes, the millennials, because we haven't seen ten percent interest rates. We haven't seen a market correction such as happened in nineteen eighty nine. So we haven't lived through those experiences. Whereas Boomers have. So they've got a little bit more of a cautious approach on the real estate market, I find. And it's very difficult to compete against 25 people for a house if you've lived through those experiences. So I do feel that there is a a big gap between the approach, but uh, I I do see uh, the lines crossing and the approaches a lot of the time can vary by each generation.
1: Steve Jalanick, sales representative with Chestnut Park Real Estate, Phil Soper, president and CEO of Royal LePage, and Anthony Hitt, CEO of Engel Völkers Americas. I'm Jane Brown and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Keith in Oshawa phoned about what he would like to see Canada offer Ukraine during heightened tensions with Russia.
12: I would just like to say I wish our useless prime minister would get off his fence sitting backside and give the Ukrainian people whatever we have in the way of weapons to keep these people from taking over or coming into their country. If they give up one democracy over there, what's going to happen next?
0: And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Marianne in Vaughan, who phoned on the two-year anniversary of the first COVID case in Canada.
13: My husband did get COVID back in April, and he was in the hospital for seven weeks.
4: Oh, my goodness.
13: In critical care, oh, in dear. isolation. I didn't get to see him. He went through a nightmare. It was uh, a miracle that he managed to come home. He was also on oxygen for another couple of months. When he came home, there is a real COVID out there, and my husband—this is ten months—and my husband is my husband is gone from compared to what he used to be. I don't know he'll ever get better. His lungs are ruined, and and yet people complain that they still refuse to get this vaccine, you're taking away my freedom? You have all the freedom you could possibly ask for. I'm so sick of these selfish people that refuse to take responsibility. It's something, yes, you don't wish it on anyone, but sometimes you kind of have to say, well, you know what? Maybe you should taste it.
1: I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.